0: Thank you for listening to the Faith-Free Lutheran Sermon Archive. Today's sermon, for the sixth Sunday after Trinity, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions about today's sermon, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website, faithlutheran-aflc.org. Now let's join in and hear what God has to say to us today. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the psalm appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Psalm 65, which you can find on page 900 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along, reading in Jesus' name, Psalm 65, verses 1 through 13. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas." The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and of the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. The water, its furrow, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance, the pastures of the wilderness overflow, the hills gird themselves with joy, the meadows clothe themselves with flocks, the valleys deck themselves with grain, they shout and sing together for joy. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've been pastor here at Faith for over 12 years now, and I think this week is the closest I've ever come to writing a sermon on the text of a hymn instead of on a passage of Scripture. There are really three reasons for this. The first is that Psalm 65 is so rich and so deep you could write a thousand sermons on it and still not scratch the surface of what it's talking about. And I spent a good deal of my week staring at Psalm 65 and going, what on earth am I going to do with this? How can I possibly preach one sermon on the text of Psalm 65? And so I started meditating on the hymns that I had chosen and that were chosen by resources I use to sing this week. And that got me to This Is My Father's World. That hymn pairs quite excellently with Psalm 65. In fact, after "O Sacred Head Now Wounded," which is objectively and truthfully the best hymn ever written, after "O Sacred Head Now Wounded," uh, this is my father's world might be my next favorite hymn. the The tune itself certainly is. I love the tune of "This Is My Father's World," but I also really appreciate the words as a An apologetics teacher, I love teaching and even singing about natural revelation. I love considering creation and how it points us to the existence of God Almighty. What's interesting about This Is My Father's World is I also have a problem with it. In fact, I have a problem with two lyrics in the hymn. The first one is the last part of verse 2. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. This is a theological issue we will deal with as we consider Psalm 65. The second part is the last part of verse 3. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be won. This is an understanding of perspective. And we'll also address that with the text of Psalm 65. And so I promise I am preaching a sermon on Psalm 65. It just so happens that I'm preaching a sermon on Psalm 65 as we consider the words of this is my father's world. And what we're really going to focus on this morning is on the nature of of eternity. And so turning our eyes back to Psalm 65, the first thing we're going to consider about Psalm 65 is that God's work of atonement is focused on eternity. Now David opens Psalm 65 by praising God for his virtues. He is worthy of paying vows to. God is honorable and faithful, And if we promise him something, he is worth fulfilling that promise. God is also virtuous in that he hears our prayers. He listens to us. And what's so interesting about this is as we consider the history of human religion, most humans, as they worship their chosen God, spend a great deal of time and energy trying to convince that God to listen to them. But God, our God, the only God, the God of the universe not only hears our prayers, he invites and commands us to come to him in prayer. It's a marveling, marvelous and stunning thing. But David's third virtue that he lists in Psalm 65 is a surprising one. God atones for our sin. That is very surprising. First, it's surprising as David lists God's virtues that David, enlisting God's virtues, would go out of his way to acknowledge his sin and, and to say that it's his sin that threatens to overwhelm him. Look at how he writes this because we need to be paying attention to David's words here. When iniquities prevail against me, You atone for our transgressions. And as is the case with Hebrew poetry, one of the very first things you want to pay attention to in Hebrew poetry is the nature of the pronouns. What's the direction of the text? The pronouns are key. And so, as we would expect from David, especially in David's psalms, when he talks about iniquities prevailing against him, we would immediately go to David talking about the sins of the enemies that are encamped around him. David frequently writes poetry about the wicked. That's no surprise. David was an embattled individual. He spent most of his life at war. And for this reason, God did not permit him to build him a temple. But in this case, David isn't writing about the wicked who surround him. David is writing about the wicked who is him. The sins that threaten to prevail against David are his own. And one of God's most surprising virtues is that it is God. God Himself who atones for our sin. That just comes out of nowhere for our sinful nature. It comes straight out of left field. Because when we commit sins, and if you're anything like me, and in this case I know you are, our first reaction is that we have to pay God back for our sins. We have to do the good thing that cancels out the bad thing. But David knows more than anything that he can't do the good thing that cancels out the bad thing. David, who in his position of privilege and pride and title, slept with another man's wife, and then had that man killed under the disguise of battle, David knows the wickedness and depth of his own sin. David here confesses that it's only God who can take care of his sin, and He does. God atones for our sin. God is the one who pays the price for our forgiveness and reconciliation. And this is a clear confession of faith on David's part. In fact, knowing the rest of Scripture, this is a clear confession on David's part of the work of Jesus Christ as David looks forward to the time when Christ would die and rise again for our sins. And the result of the atonement God makes for our sin is reconciliation. We get to dwell in His courts, be satisfied with the goodness of God's house, and bask in the holiness of God's temple. Now sure, The temporal fulfillment of all of this is what life in the church looks like. You are doing that right now. You are sitting there enjoying reconciliation with God. You are sitting there enjoying the goodness of God's house. You are sitting there basking in the holiness of God's temple. That's what life in the church looks like. But for David... And for you and for the saints of all time, this is really a confession of what eternity looks like. Because when God atones for your sins, when He puts your sins away, when He washes you in the blood of Christ, God has eternity on His mind. In fact, for God, it was always about eternity. As David moves on. We also read that God's miraculous works are focused on eternity. And David writes, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. But how does God do this? What are the awesome deeds he answers us with? And how is he the hope of the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas? We would immediately, after reading about atonement, and rightfully go to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, absolutely. We would go to the work of the Holy Spirit through Scripture, and in the church we would go to word and sacraments as we rightly confess. But David's response here in Psalm 65 is very interesting. David points us to two activities. One, God speaks creation into existence, and two, God manages creation when we are threatened by it. Now, to David and to us, why is God speaking creation into existence so important? And this is where I think, especially I think this as an apologetics teacher, we go so quickly off base. I want you to pause just for a moment and think about your answer to this question. Why are Genesis 1 and 2 in the Bible? Why? Now, certainly it's very important for the story of our faith that we begin at the very beginning Julie Andrews told us it was a very good place to start. So we would start with creation, right? Well, okay, but it's probably not merely chronological. But as an apologetics teacher, what I find so frequently is that Christians of the 20th and 21st century specifically fall into the trap that God put Genesis 1 and 2 in the Bible as an apologetic against evolution. It works so incredibly well, doesn't it? Evolution says we all came as a matter of happenstance and random chance through now 15 billion years of the universe's history and that, that there was the big cosmic sneeze. And after that, we went from ponds come to tadpoles to dinosaurs to monkeys to birds to people. And so God says, no, that's not how it works. This is how it works. Right? Genesis 1 and 2 just obliterates evolution. Except that's not how it works. Evolution isn't a threat to God. One, because it's incredibly bad science and God is the God of science. But two, evolution's only been around for 175-ish years. It's not a threat. God knows what he's doing. And so we left. Why are Genesis 1 and 2 in the Bible? And here's my pastoral theological answer to you. Because God creates out of nothing. When God speaks, things happen. God said, let there be light, and there's light. God said, let there be the sun and the moon and there are the sun and the moon. God said, let there be plants and animals and there are plants and animals. God said, let there be people and there is Adam and Eve. But with the same word of God's mouth, with His same creative power and authority, God creates our faith. He speaks our faith into existence with his gospel. Faith isn't our contribution. Faith isn't intellectual uh, assent to a set of specific facts. Faith is God's miracle. He speaks our faith into existence out of nothing when we were dead in our trespasses and, sins. and as David marvels at the creative power at God's word, David here leaves us with a little nugget knowing that he appreciates God took out of his cold, dead, sinful heart and he planted the hope of the gospel and he raised it to faith in him. And then David turns and he starts speaking about God managing creation. And it's through creation that God delivers His promises to us. It's through creation that we get our daily bread. The miracle of God's provision is not that we sit around an empty table, bow our heads, pray the Lord's Prayer, and when we get to the part that says, give us this day our daily bread, whoosh, a meal magically appears before us on the table. That's not how it works. God sustains us with His creation, through His creation, and He does so even with the Gospel. God delivers to you His Word through a pastor. God delivers to you His Word through the water of baptism and the bread and wine of communion. God continues to sustain your faith as you show up weekly to a created church building. And you confess your faith with creation, other created beings around you. Through the creative power of God's word and through creation itself, God gives us the promises of his gospel. All of which is intended to deliver deliver us to eternity, to sustain our faith until forever. For God, even from Genesis 1 1, it was always about eternity. And so finally, God's work of restoration is focused on eternity. Now in this last section of Psalm 65, David extols God's virtues in sustaining creation and its right functioning. The rivers and water of the earth produce an abundant harvest. Even the wilderness provides abundant blessing. And and we would nod and we would agree with that and we would celebrate that until we stop and think. And remember, that's not how it always goes. Rivers and waters can have a destructive effect as they flood. Or rivers and water can have a destructive effect as they are withheld in a drought. Right now, the wilderness of multiple parts of this continent is ablaze with wildfire. Yesterday morning, I went out to Becker to help my parents move some of their things into their new house. And my parents live two miles away, more or less, from the nuclear power plant out by Monticello. And as I was driving down Highway 10, you could barely make it out because of the smoke haze in the atmosphere. Creation often is broken. Creation Often, it seems, is both under attack and attacking us. So why would David, in an even more primitive time than we live right now, extol the beauty of creation? Well, it's right functioning creation that's on his mind. And that's the clue here for us. Creation, functioning how God designed it to function, is a beautiful thing that blesses us abundantly. Even in a sinful and fallen world, creation operating as God intended it to is a wonderful thing to behold. But that's also why it's best for us to see this last section of Psalm 65 as preparation for eternity. Because what David is talking about a right-functioning creation, that's the goal of eternity. That we, for all eternity, will dwell in a creation that has been perfected by the hand of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what takes me back to this is our Father's world. In the rustling grass, I hear Him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. God as the creator and sustainer of creation operates in and through us through it to bless us and get our attention absolutely but because He's so concerned about your eternity, He would have us know Him and hear Him in specific ways. He does not grant us permission to use the random coincidences of the world around us to listen to Him. What He does instead is He speaks to us and He reveals to Himself to us in and through His Word. And that's how He wants us to hear us, to hear Him. God gives us His Word. He gives us His Word in the church, all so that we can know Him in the way He wants to be known, in the way He has revealed Himself, in specific, concrete ways that deliver to us comfort and assurance when our sin just like David, threatens to undo us. And when we witness creation tainted by sin, threatening to overwhelm us. God wants us to have peace. He wants us specifically and certainly to have peace. And then, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be won. As we live our lives of faith, we are constantly under attack from the devil, from the world around us, and even from our own sinful flesh. On a day-to-day basis, the battle is not done. The work of Satan continues to be thrown down by the Word of God. God calls us to faithfulness in loving Him and loving our neighbor the problem with that lyric isn't that it's wrong. It's that the perspective can lead us off path. Because what God wants you to know is that the battle has been won for all eternity. That Satan and the world... And your sin and death and every enemy of God and Christ and of his children is a defeated foe. And so Jesus Christ, even as he hung from the cross, uttered the words, it is finished, paid in full. Dear saints, the battle has been won. It is done. And it is done as far as eternity is concerned. Jesus has done everything you need for all eternity for your salvation to be reconciled with God. Your salvation is completely and wholly wrapped up in the cross and with the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Now, as you live your day-to-day lives, as you await to be reunited with your Savior, and as you wait to be reunited with all of the saints who have gone before, you wait for eternity. It's about eternity. It's always been about eternity. Amen.